Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 24, 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Easter is this beautiful uh, reminder of God's love for each one of us, but, but I do kind of wonder how many of us feel like we kind of limp into Easter. I think the same thing's true with Christmas, like you kind of, you get there and it, it's like there's been so much going on, especially with Christmas, there's all the preparation, I don't know, three, four, five months, depending on how many kids you have. Um, and, and you kind of limp in and then you're like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to rejoice. Uh, but we kind of do the same thing with, with Easter sometimes. It's, it's maybe not the busyness that leads up to it, but it's like we're not in the right place. We're not in the right uh, spirit. You know, things are going on in, in the world around us. Things are going on in our own lives. And it's like, it's like you show up and you sing the great happy songs. And I hope some of you are feeling it, and it's great if you are. But I know that there's some of you here that probably aren't feeling it. Not yet. Not exactly. You know, you're kind of like you're kind of limping in. It's like your back is against the wall, um, and you know that there's there's just not any going forward. There's there's something that's in the way, and and the obstacles seem too hard to overcome. You know, it reminds me of uh, the Israelite people when they're fleeing slavery in Egypt, and and the story is well known. The, they they are fleeing. They get to the Reed Sea or or the Sea of Reeds, and, and there's water in front of them. And water means death to humans, right? No one's that good at swimming, especially when you're in a big, giant group. Um, so, so there's this water in front of them, and it's deep, and, and there's no hope that direction. And they look behind them, and what do they see? They see 600 Egyptian chariots. Now, chariots at their time, these are like the tanks of, of their own war machines. And there's 600 of them. Three would have been scary. Like, there's so many. And, and that's what's coming up behind them. And then they turn around, and there's the water. And, and their backs are against the ropes. And we're told that they begin to despair. This is in Exodus 14, verse 11. They turn to Moses, their leader, and they say to him, in, in a kind of snarky way that I kind of appreciate, they turn to Moses and they say to Moses, 
Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you led us out here to die? I kind of like it. But, you know, after the events of this last week, when it comes to Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and, and if you just imagine yourselves maybe in the place of the disciples, uh, I feel like this is where they're at. This is, where they, they, this is how they come into Easter. They come in in this place of despair. Let's pray. Lord God, through your word, we just pray that you would open us up to you today. Lord, we recognize that some of us have had a relatively easy journey to Easter. Uh, this year, and others have, have felt far more like the disciples. Far more like the Israelites as they were fleeing where the water was in front of them, and that means despair, and that means death, and then they turn around, and, and here is this Egyptian war machine coming in on them. And there's no hope apart from you. Lord, we pray that you would open us up to look into your word today, that you would open us up to hear from you, that you would open us up to see that you are a God that makes the way uh, when we feel like there is no way ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So all of this whole Lent uh, season, we've been in this sermon series, and I'll catch you up real quick. So if this is your first time here uh, in, I don't know, a few months, um, you won't be lost. But we've been in this series where we've been looking at the role of a priest, uh, particularly through the Old Testament and going into the New Testament. And we're looking at uh, not just how do we use that word, uh, priest, in our society today, but how do we use, or how does the Bible define that? So here's my really quick definition of what a priest is in the Bible. There's a holy God, and there's a hurting people, and there's certain people at certain times in the Bible that stand in the gap between the two. It's like they're in the doorway between the two. And, and when the people want to give sacrifices to their God, when they want to bless their God, they give it to the priest. And then the priest turns around, and they're, they're kind of in the doorway, and then they give it to God. And when God wants to give his blessing to his people, he actually gives it to the priest, and the priest turns around and hands out God's blessing. So there's these certain people that are kind of these doorway uh, people. And this happens, uh, or this starts very early in the Bible. So in the book uh, of Genesis, at, at the creation of the world, we see Adam and Eve, and they are in, uh, in the garden, and they're in this special place. They're actually like the priests for all of creation. We're told that they are, they are the ones that will stand in this gap uh, as, as humanity, that they will stand in this gap between a holy God and, and all of creation. And, and we can assume that as there's more and more people, that there'll be more and more priests, if you will. Now, they don't do a great job. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read the beginning of the Bible, I don't mean to wreck it for you, but uh, the fall happens in chapter 3. You're not very far in. And, and they're tricked by this, this creature, one that they're supposed to be representing before God, what part of creation, uh, this snake, and they are, tri are tricked into rebelling against God. And tragically... Uh, they're led astray, and tragically, it, it results in them being kicked out of the garden, kicked out of this place of blessing, kicked out of this special role 
for them, and now they're just kind of in the rest of creation. But we are given a sliver of hope. God promises to them that one day a descendant of theirs will come who will defeat evil and restore humanity into this royal priesthood status. We're told that one of their descendants will come and he will crush the head of the deceiver. But we're also told that this descendant will also be struck at the same time. He will be both this priest and he will be the sacrifice himself. And as we continue to read through the Old Testament, we read uh, Israel's story, and we come across a few people, quite a few actually, that we think might be this role. They start to do things that are a lot like this snake crusher, and we think maybe we found them. And we come across Abraham, we come across David, we come across Moses, these, these figures that, that give us little glimmers of hope, and then every one of them falls short. Every one of them falls short of, of this plan. They all fail, but they all have stories that point forward. They point forward into the New Testament. They point forward to this ultimate royal priest that is to come, the one that will, that will crush evil and also be struck by it. Anyone know who I'm talking about? <laughs> it's Jesus, right? It's not a trick question. It's, I, I've, I've been joking, it's the Sunday school answer. When I grew up going to Sunday school as a little kid, whenever the teacher would ask a question, just say Jesus, and either you were directly correct or you could kind of argue the point because you were like, oh, who's this? And you're like, no, actually the answer is Moses. And you're like, but Jesus has the new Moses. You know, you could be that kid. Especially if you wanted to be a pastor, you could be that kid. But today I just want you to imagine if you will, that you are one of Jesus' disciples. That you're one of Jesus' disciples, not just now, but back then. That you were called out of this ordinary life into something truly extraordinary. You've been following him for years. You've been learning from him. You've even seen him perform miracles, incredible miracles that he has done right before you. And you've come across many different people that have many different opinions on who this Jesus is. Some have said he's a, he's a prophet, like from the Old Testament. Some have said he's just, he's just a wise teacher. But you're pretty sure you know who he is. You're pretty positive that you know who he truly is. That looking through uh, all this knowledge, everything you've learned, you're pretty sure you know... And he even asked you once. This is Matthew chapter 16, 15 through 17. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Messiah meaning anointed one. Son of the living God, a direct quote from the prophet Daniel. So Peter doesn't just put two nice things together. I mean, this, these are just things that we say about Jesus. We don't really pick up on. But Peter's quoting the Old Testament here. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. 
For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so you've been following this Jesus. You've been imitating him. You've been learning from him. He's even sent you on like little missionary journeys. He's paired you up. He's sent you out. He's had you perform miracles uh, in his place. And you're sure you know who he is. You're sure that he is this promised Messiah. You're sure that he is this, this new king that is supposed to come, this new king in the line of David who will rule God's people. He will throw off these, these evil pagan Romans that have been controlling uh, the entire known world to them. He will throw them off and he will make this new kingdom. He will reign. He will be, or his reign will be one with no more sorrow, with no more suffering the prophet, prophet spoke of long ago. He's the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And, and then you go forward, and when Jesus is baptized by John at the Jordan River, a voice comes from heaven. God's voice, and it says this, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Again, three wonderful Old Testament quotes. If you ever get to a part in the New Testament, this is a little advice, if you ever get to a part in the New Testament and you're like, that just doesn't make sense. What's going on there? Look backwards in the book. <laughs> Look backwards. It almost always makes sense in context. You are my son. This is from Psalm 2, verse 7. This wonderful song that, that speaks of this king that is to come in the line of David. Whom I love, from Genesis 22 too, like Isaac, the loved son of Abraham. The one who he was told to sacrifice before God, but then God provided a substitute. With you I am well pleased. This is Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah is talking about one that is to come who will be the suffering royal servant. He will be king, but he also will be the sacrifice. He also will be slain on behalf of his people. You see, this baptism of Jesus, it's almost like, it's almost like his ordination into this royal priesthood. And, and when someone would become a king, when someone would become the high priest, those are really the only two roles this happens in, they would anoint them with oil, which simply means they would pour uh, oil on their head. It was awfully done by a prophet. Uh, and they would pour oil all over the head of the king or, or the new high priest. And here we read, wonderfully, that it's not oil that's poured on the head, but that the Holy Spirit descends from heaven in the form of a dove, anointing him right there. And you know, it's not surprising that he starts to behave like this royal priest at this point. I'll give you a few examples. The first one is that Jesus begins to forgive sins outside of the normal ways that you should be doing it. They have rules. They have, they have a whole system set up. Let's look at this one. This is Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. Jesus got into a boat and crossed the sea and came to his own city. And some people brought him a paralyzed man on a stretcher. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Cheer up, friend. Your sins are forgiven. Then some of the experts in Moses' teaching thought he is dishonoring God. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked them, Why are you thinking evil things? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Verse 7, so the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and praised God for giving such authority to humans. This is a wonderful story, but out of context, I feel like we miss what's going on. Why were the religious leaders upset? Isn't forgiving sins a good thing? And I also love this phrase. What's easier to say? I forgive your sins or get up and walk? And, and the, like, the churchy part of us wants to say, it's much harder to forgive sins than to say get up and walk. But it's a little hard to know if your sins are forgiven once some teacher in Galilee says it, right? <laughs> get up and walk, there's instant proof. Either you get up and walk or you don't get up and walk. So that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, I want you to know that I have this much power. So why don't, you know, just to prove it, I need to just get up and walk uh, and go home. And we're told in the next verse, he got up and walked. Exact same words. And he went home. You know, in their system, there's this perfectly good way to be forgiven of sins. It goes like this. You go to the temple. You bring your offering. You bring your offering to a priest. You have, you have an interaction with the priest. The priest takes it. Remember, they stand in the gap between, between a holy God and, and hurting people. So you give it to the priest. The priest turns around. They give it to God. There's forgiveness that comes. The priest gives that to you. That's the system. It's not show up in some house in Galilee. So the religious leaders, they're upset. They're really upset. They're upset as, as they look at this whole thing. Jesus continues on in his priestly ways. We'll go to Matthew 17. Jesus takes some of his closest friends. He goes up on a high mountain. This is Matthew 17, 1 through 9. It says, after six days, which is just a wonderful way. I'll pause there. Whenever you get six or seven, you've heard of seven in the Old Testament, right? There's, there's so many things that are seven days. It's a really important number. Creation happens in seven days. And a lot of things happen after six days. What's after six days? Seven, right? So here we are again. We have another seven. After seven days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Again, if you don't get what's going on, go backwards in the book. 
If you go back to Moses' story, there's a time where he's on Mount Sinai, and he goes up, and, and on the mountain he's receiving the law, and he's getting the directions of how to build the temple. And then he's shown this perfect figure of a high priest. And the high priest is so bright that he can't even look at him. And, and we're told that he's, he's more sparkly than, than any jewels you could ever see. And, and actually the clothes that the priest wears later kind of reflects this image. But there's this true one, this, this bright one that Moses even comes down. And Moses, just from being in his presence, is now glowing. It's not Moses that's glowing. He's glowing because he's been in contact with, with this one that, that is so bright. Let me read that verse again. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then appeared before him Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Elijah also went up on this very same mountain, Mount Sinai, had an interaction directly with God. So here we have Elijah again, verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? <laughs> Something going on. <laughs> Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I think it's actually in, in uh, Mark's gospel that, that the gospel writer kind of pulls out of the text at this point and kind of whispers to us and says, he didn't know what he was talking about. He was terrified. <laughs> and actually, I think in that one, he doesn't want to put up a tent. He wants to put up three tabernacles. He wants to put up three, three, ten, three you know, temples, one, one for each of these. It's like, he didn't know what he was talking about. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Sound familiar? The same verses as his baptism. This is my son, who I love. With him I am well pleased. And then God adds this, listen to him. Another quote. Moses spoke of one that was to come after him, one that was going to be greater than him. And then Moses says, listen to him when he comes. So here we get this same one. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So there's something going on here that he's saying. People aren't going to understand what's going on here until after, after I'm raised from the dead. 
So as one of his disciples, you are sure you know who this Jesus is. You're so sure. You're sure enough that you, you follow him to Jerusalem. When he's saying that he's going to be betrayed, you say, surely not me. When they come to, to arrest him, you pull out your sword. You're ready to fight. You are sure that he is this promised Messiah, this new king in the line of David. He will rule over God's people. He will be the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Or at least you were sure Friday morning. You thought you were sure early Friday. But what about now? Three days ago, Jesus was arrested. He was put on trial like a criminal. And what's worse, he died a criminal's death. He was crucified on a cross for all to see. They put him right on, on a busy road leading into town. A road that was so busy with travel that the sign above his head was in three different languages. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And now the story's over. That's it. He's He's dead. And the disciples, you're hiding. Without, without your leader, what, what are we? We gave up our whole lives to follow after him. And it's all over. There's no way forward. Now all that's left to be done is, is for some of the women to go early on Sunday morning and, and prepare his body, give him his last ritual uh, preparation for burial. After all, I, I guess it's the least that we can do for him. Then I guess we head back to Galilee. We go back to our ordinary lives. We hope that they don't find out that we were one that was with him. Don't you see? It's all, it's all over at this point. The, the game is done. There's no way forward. Luke 24, 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember he told you when you were still in Galilee? that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again? 
Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and went away wondering to himself what had happened. This is amazing. It amazes me that, that the reaction of the disciples is the reaction of so many people. Like, it's, it's just... It, it sounds like it's nonsense. It, it, sounds, it sounds too good to be true. How, how could this be? It's amazing, and, and we think, what, what happened here? But the hints, again, go back further in the book. <laughs> the hints are there. In Israel's scriptures, there is a pattern of a high priest who suffers himself also as a sacrifice. So he's both the priest and he's the sacrifice, and he dies on behalf of his people. He's the snake crusher who is also struck at the same time. The priest who becomes the sacrifice. The king who will sit on the throne. But he isn't going to take that throne by force. He's not going to build up some grand army and, and conquer. Instead, he takes his throne by offering his life. By offering his life for others. And then ascending to a royal throne. On the right hand of God the Father. So on Easter, we learn that death even death on the cross did not have the final say. Just when it seemed like everything was over and there was no way forward, we worship a God who made a way. Just when it seemed like, like all was empty, three days later, it was the tomb that was empty. That was good. That wasn't in my notes. I like that. <laughs> He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Jesus is the royal high priest who we've been looking for. He's the one we've been searching for all along. He is also the atoning sacrifice. And even death could not hold him. Just when it seemed like there was no way forward, God made a way. That's who he is. You learn a lot about someone when there's no way forward. This is what we learn about God. When there's no way forward, we worship a God who makes a way. He is the light in the darkness. He is the glimmer of love in a world filled with hate. 
He is the one who provides a path forward no matter the circumstances. He is the God who makes a way, and the really good news today is that he has not changed in the last 2,000 years. Amen? This is the same God. This is the same risen Jesus. He is still on his throne. It's just as true for us today as it was for the disciples back then. It can be hard to believe, but it's just as true. He is the light when all you see is darkness in the world. He is still that glimmer of love when the world feels so full of hate and so full of despair. He is still the one who provides a path forward regardless of your circumstances. He is the God who makes a way. Romans 5.8, the news gets even better. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we feel like we're not good enough yet. <laughs> like, well, maybe, maybe if I you know, go to church enough, maybe if I read my Bible enough, maybe if I pray enough, then, then I can have you know, a way forward, and, and maybe I need to like, earn God's love. Hopefully you've never thought that, but I'm sure you have. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not once we became good enough, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This death, this, this atoning sacrifice, it was for you. He died for you. 